Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for joining us. This is episode 46, I believe. We're going to hit the big 5-0 pretty soon here. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this episode is going to be featuring Andy Makita. This is a pre-recorded show. This is why it's dark and soon about to be light again, and soon my hair is about to grow longer all of a sudden on you. Uh, this was recorded earlier this month. We actually have a story, a Jack O'Neill story in relation to hair that has been brought up before, but it will be brought up again in this episode. So Andy Makita will be uh, coming on in, in just a moment here. As this is a pre-recorded show, we took questions in advance, so those uh, are going to be sprinkled out through the conversation, as with uh, James C.D. Robbins later on, more specifically. Uh, and uh, I hope you just sit back and enjoy it, and uh, if you're in the YouTube chat, have a good time chatting with your, uh, uh, your friends and fellow Stargate uh, fans. So that's uh, what's going to be happening there. After the show, uh, I'm going to be revealing some new merchandise that's going to be available and giving you one last chance to submit trivia questions for your communication stone. So that's enough from me. Let's go ahead and bring in producer, director, Andy Makita. He goes all the way back to the beginning of the series with Children of the Gods, and he was one of the lifers going to all the way to the end. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy. Producer, director... Andy Makita, welcome to Dial the Gate. Hey, thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for having me on. This is, uh, this is exciting. I appreciate you being here, sir. So you joined um, Stargate SG-1. Uh, was it... When did, when did you uh, start uh, with regular involvement in the show? I, I was, I was one, of the, one of the lifers. I was there from the very beginning to the very end. I was the, um, the first assistant director of the pilot episode directed by Mario Azapardi, Children of the Gods. And uh, yeah, and from that point on, I just, I stayed with the show to the very end. I, I recognized a good thing when I saw it and, uh, you know, such great people. Absolutely. Uh, did, did you cut, were you brought over from MacGyver? Were you involved in MacGyver at all? No, no, I wasn't involved with MacGyver, but it was okay. interesting because I, I worked with Jonathan Glasner on uh, 21 Jump Street. I was an, okay. an assistant director on Jump Street, and uh, I think that was the show that I met him on. Anyway, we had met before that on, on something. I'm not sure what. I think it was Jump Street. And, uh, and so he had called me in for an interview for the pilot to, uh, to work with this director. And, uh, and I also at that time met um, Michael Greenberg and Richard Dean Anderson. And when I saw Rick, it was, we recognized each other from playing hockey because there's, you know, there's a, a film... <laughs> bunch of film guys that play hockey on Thursday nights. And uh, there was Rick and he goes, Hey, I know you. And I'm like, yeah, I know you. I didn't know him from MacGyver. I'd never seen MacGyver before. <laughs> so really? I, didn't know him I didn't even realize he was the actor on the show. We were just like, <laughs> you recognize him from the court. Yeah. So our, our interview was basically talking hockey and, uh, and just life, you know, we oh, didn't that's even too funny. Wow. talk too much about it. So. Tell us about watching this show form from the ground up the first one you know i mean this 
I, I assume this is um, a show that you really cut your teeth on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it, it absolutely was. And I mean, it was for me really my first sort of foray into, into science fiction. So, I mean, that unto itself, I mean, it's a, it's just the language of, you know, the different types of, of uh, life forms and the planets and the, you know, I mean, it, it's all, it's, I know it's, it's based on the, on the film, which certainly informed me greatly, but it was just, it was a big undertaking. There's no question about it. Huge builds, you know, the building, the Stargate building, the actual, uh, uh, you know, the bunker location and uh, just the, the scope of the undertaking for episodic television. And in those days, the orders were for 22 episodes. So, you know, it's a, it's a sizable chunk of time and it's a huge commitment. Whereas, you know, nowadays, most of the TV episodic stuff is 10 episodes, maybe 14, not quite such a commitment. And, uh, you know, going into it, I didn't for even for a heartbeat realize or consider that it was going to be something that was going to go on for over 10 years, you know, a huge part of my life. You have a great chemistry between the cast and crew. And that that's, it's, it's so conducive to a, to a productive relationship that can, that can continue for a decade. just the first one alone. And then you had five with Atlantis and then unfortunately just two with SGU. But what do you think the, the magic was? What do you think the secret ingredient was? Was it the Stargate itself? Was it that, that storytelling mechanism? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, the, the fact that it was grounded in, you know, there was a certain degree of reality with the U.S. Air Force component, you know. So, I mean, there was this. So there's the reality. I mean, it's a real existing um, entity, the Air Force. And then you've got um, the Egyptian mythology, which was super cool. And, and to a certain extent, you know, was part of real history. Yet with mm-hmm. this top spin of the pyramids being used as potential landing, landing platforms, platforms. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, like uh, all these sort of like really cool, interesting sort of connections and, uh, and the combination of those characters from those different, uh, you know, from the air force, from, from uh, uh, all these different places and the, and those, the chemistry that formed from, from those relationships. I mean, at the time, did I think it was going to become a, a huge hit. I don't know. I, I, I think we were too wrapped up in the process itself to sort of look that far ahead to see if we actually mm. had something special going on. I mean, some of it to me seemed a little bit far-fetched, like some of the costumes were a bit much and the headdresses were a bit much and, and you know, there's just human beings with, with these uh, adornments seemed on the surface to be a little bit, maybe a bit much, maybe a little bit campy, but it, but then again, when you were watching it, and the scripts were always really great and really well thought out, um, Brad and, and Rob and Jonathan, I mean, they really did a, a remarkable job. And when Joe and Paul and Carl Binder and Alan McCullough, the whole gang, I mean, it was a really good, very smart, creative group of people that, um, you know, and I'm sure I'm missing all kinds of names. Here, oh, yeah. But um, it it started to really kind of come together pretty quickly to all of us that, okay, this, this is a, this is a smart group of people and, and, and uh, it's a fun premise. Science fiction is cool. There's obviously a, a fan base for it. We, we thought, Hey, maybe this thing's got legs. And, uh, but never did I ever dream it was going to go for as long as it did. 17 seasons of television, man. Someone's doing something right. So, yeah. so you know what, and, and to the, and, and, and literally whenever I go into a new show, 
I always kind of reference back to that experience at Stargate with the showrunners of, you know, Brad in particular, Rob Cooper in particular, Joe and Paul. That's a show that was produced properly. You know, it was done right. They had, they had stories and scripts well in advance. They had charted the course for the season and sometimes multiple seasons. So they could plan ahead. You know, you, you would know that if we're going to be building this particular set, well, we're probably going to be changing it over three or four more times for other things as the season goes along. And, and they would be able to sort of forecast what they would, what that would be and would work with the production designer and the rest of the art department to plan that out. So things became modular and the same thing with the locations and, uh, and our, uh, uh, basically our line producer and main producer on boots on the ground, John Smith was also integral and, uh, and just keeping a really smart, well thought out schedule. And, uh, and just that communication within every, within the, the whole operation was great. And, and then as, as the show evolved, um, you know, and the group of directors got a little bit smaller with, uh, you know, Peter DeLuise and, and Martin Wood and myself and Will Waring. It just, now it just had a, now we all, we spoke the language. For somebody to come in outside that hadn't been part of the show, it was a little bit more difficult for them just to learn the franchise and learn the language. It was, a, it would be tough for them. So we just it made more sense to keep it a little bit more streamlined and have a smaller group of people involved. Is that, uh, how common is that to go with normally a specific set of directors? Occasionally try someone else out, bring, bring someone into the group, uh, but oh, yeah. to normally keep with a specific set of directors. How common oh, is that in the industry? It, it, it is pretty common. I mean, typically on a, on a new show, on a first year show you'll you'll want to sort of cycle through a bunch of different people to try to see who's going to be a good fit but if the show is going to go on for multiple seasons it's quite common to have you know just to have that core group of people that really work well with the story department with work well with the cast uh and and just you know are instantly sort of become part of the team and are available and interested to be part of it on a longer term some people are more interested in just you know being the 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 gig of the week and drive through and just do multiple shows of, uh, or, or just single episodes of multiple shows is what I'm trying to say. But, um, it is pretty, it is pretty common. I've, I've been part of that for many years. So you said you started off as first AD on children of the gods. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. My first, uh, basically all of season one, um, was first, first AD. And, uh, and then I started doing some second unit directing, I think in season two, and I was a production manager and, and uh, my strengths were certainly more on the set than they were with the, in the administration. And that's where John Lennock, John G. Lennock kind of, he and I sort of shared a lot of the responsibilities and his strengths were certainly more in the administrative side. And, uh, and I just basically spent more of my time on the set. And so I would help out the directors if they were starting to get behind schedule or whatever, I would, I would take the B camera guys and, and, uh, you know, clean up inserts or some of the action stuff. Um, you know, the, the, the folks coming through the gate, there's a, there's effects type shots that I would do, uh, just to help lessen the burden for the main unit directors. Yeah. It's, it's really common to think, oh, you know, this director directed, every single shot of this episode because he's directing the show. That's not yeah. the case. It's, it's, it's a team effort and there's all kinds, like you said, inserts and, you know, second unit stuff, tighter, tighter shots that they just can't necessarily get to. 
in, in yeah, that. There's obviously the, the, the efficiencies of doing it at the time, like on set, instead of going back and trying to recreate things after the fact when you're in post-production. So you try to anticipate as many of those things as you can right at the time. So that was, that was a, an area that, uh, um, that I could provide, you know, my, my level of experience and expertise. And that of course led to, uh, um, being offered the first episode, which was, which was foothold. And, tell, uh, tell us a little bit about foothold yeah. season, season three, you have alien costumes that have never been seen before. Um, and just, a, a wacky premise that man, yeah. if it's not done right, it can be so corny, but I yes. think, I think they, I think that you guys really pulled it off. I loved it when I saw it originally. Did you really? Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I, <laughs> I haven't looked, I haven't looked back at it for many, many years, obviously. And, uh, but I do remember it was like, oh my gosh, this was, uh, this was quite something to saddle me with, with all of this on my first episode. Like, oh man, are you trying to, you trying to put a, put a stop to this right away or what's going on guys? But uh, no, it was, a, it was a great challenge. It was, <laughs> you know, the things that you remember, uh, of course, the, the, the crazy aliens and, and you know, the, the, the construction, the design and the construction of the suits themselves, the, uh, uh, the wacky pods that we had hanging from the gate room ceiling that of course, just trying to get Rick and Don Davis and the gang, you know, raise them up on, on cranes and put the <laughs> harnesses on them and hoist them up and then wrap like, you know, Rick, as you could well imagine, was like, what the hell is going on here? What am I, is this for real? You're actually making me do this? And like, yeah, pal, don't worry about it. You're and in a said, sci-fi show. You're in a sci-fi you show. Drink the Kool-Aid, man. Clear. Don't worry about it. It's going to be great. <laughs> but, you know, those were obviously some of the challenges was just working out some of the logistics with that, but it was fun. It was a, it was great. Got huge support from, from the, from all the cast and all the producers and, and the whole crew, everybody was on board and that makes a huge difference. You know, you know that you can, it's okay to trip and fall periodically because they're going to be there to pick you up. And, and Yeah. You have a support net. I mean, you have to, you have to come prepared, you know, but th- well, unex- yeah. things, unexpected things are going to pop up every now and then. Oh, for sure. And you can only prepare yourself so much. Believe me, there, that's that's the thing. You can you can prep yourself to the cows come home and then, you know, an actor like like Richard Dean Anderson will, will ask a question that you're just not anticipating. Yeah. And that's perfectly relevant. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, I didn't think of that. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to have an answer. An answer. You can't sit there and go, um, I don't know, or make something up because he's a smart enough guy to know that if he's being BS or not, you know course but yeah they were they were they were terrific so what um was the cycle of an episode on on uh the show through the course of of those 17 seasons i'm sure you know things got tightened or stretched here or there and changed but what was the what was the typical cycle how long how much time would you have to prep typically and then you know how long was a production shoot and and then post with editing and sound and everything else how much of that would well, you be involved in specifically specifically i would be involved in the you know the the, the seven to eight days of of prep typically because the in the early seasons we had i think it was seven and a half shooting days we would usually overlap like at at, uh, at lunch one episode would take over for the next so you'd have basically seven days seven or eight days to prep the show and there would also be obviously conversations that would happen prior to that before the actual official prep start like if if brad or jonathan or rob had 
the story idea and had a, a, a pre-production draft of the script, they would certainly share that with you well in advance. But your official prep time would be basically seven to eight days. And then you would go into production for the same, same time frame. And then there might be some second units, you know, beyond that. Um, you know, there, you, you would schedule based on efficiencies. Like if we were going to be out at a particular location for a couple of days and that location works great for the next episode as well, then you why know, not? Yeah. yeah, why not? You know, so stay there and let's, let's shoot a day for that episode as well. Those efficiencies became more and more common uh, further along into the season but uh, or into the multiple seasons uh, where we really got good at at uh, crafting those uh, those sorts of things but um essentially so yeah seven and a half days of shooting and then uh, uh, as a director after a few days that the the editors would have to assemble the material you would go into the editing room and basically craft a director's cut and you would get two or three days typically three to uh, to put that together and um you would not there wouldn't be any sort of pressure to get it to time you would just put you know the best version of the show forward that you could with the editor you wouldn't cut dialogue so sometimes the shows would be long a case in point of course would be what we'll be talking about soon i'm sure with heroes because heroes started off obviously as a uh, as as one hour of television and and uh unfortunately yeah. i shot a little bit more than i should have and it uh, well, to be fair, Rob also wrote a lot. He wrote it. It was a long, so, it was a long script, and it was so good. I it mean, was it was so all good. That, but it, but it wasn't. You know, it, it evolved. Like once, once the well, we, we can get into that yeah. uh, eventually. <laughs> but anyway, to answer your question, yes, the seven and a half or the the seven to eight days of pre-production, the same time frame to actually shoot the hour, and then you'd have two or three days to, to just edit the uh, uh, picture edit, essentially assemble a director's cut. And then at that point it goes to the, to the producers and, and then they get their cut. Would it, would editing it take place immediately after the show was shot or would you sometimes have to move on to the next episode or was it scheduled so that directors would have breathing room to do all that before moving all- on to the next one? Yeah, there was always a little bit of breathing room. Sometimes there was overlap, but for the most part, there was breathing room to be able to make that work. We would always try to cycle, um, you know, three directors, four directors, so you wouldn't be going necessarily back to back to back. And you would have that opportunity to, uh, you know, to have a decent amount of editing time. Um, but again, as uh, like when, when SG-1 and, and Atlantis were shooting concurrently there for a couple of seasons, we were going back to back and, and that was a lot on our plates, you know. And, 40 but, episodes but it, a year? What are you talking about? That sounds yeah, like yeah. it's easy. Yeah. What are you exactly. complaining about? Yeah. Well, me, there was no complaining, no complaining, <laughs> but the, uh, the workload was, uh, was such that, yeah, it was a, got to be a little bit of a dance, but no. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you for a little complaining. I mean, 40 stories a year. You know, you got to broaden, probably broaden your director pool a little bit, but I mean, still. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we, we, we broadened the pool and, uh, you know, the team grew, obviously, at that point. And uh, uh, but honestly, for a while, it just became a blur, like it really and truly did. And uh, again, hats off to Brad and Rob and, and Carl and Joe and Paul, Martin Garrell, the whole gang, Carl Binder for uh, for just having the, the vision to be able to actually construct all those stories that made sense like there was very few duds in my opinion there was a few that were you know maybe not as quite as strong as the others but for the most part they were all great hours of television 
when you do 40 hours of TV a year, they can't all be home runs. No, it's it's no. just not physically possible. You yeah, know, no, you're no. going to have to throw in some of your B-level ideas at some point because you can only yeah. do so much. And yeah, you can't yeah. just expand the team to to get more, you know, good ideas. It, it just would just unravel. So Absolutely. But, you know, you would infuse uh, uh, you're bringing in somebody like Peter Deloise, for instance. Like that was such an right. incredible, as you could well imagine, this just you know, absolute, you know, just so much energy, so much enthusiasm, so many great ideas, so creative, so fun. Uh, you know, that was a real infusion of, of really good positive energy. And same with Martin Garrow and everybody that came into the show, but they, they just elevated it to the next, to the next level. It was great. It was wonderful to be a part of. I want to, uh, go back to heroes. Um, sure. I, I fought long and hard tr- uh, with myself trying to figure out which uh, stories I wanted to ask. Because I'd love to have you back in a few months again to talk about a few more episodes. It's like, which ones do I talk about this time? And Rob Cooper and I had recently sat down and discussed him bringing heroes to life. And adding a subplot with, with Robert Picardo and yeah. you know to, to, to fill it out to two hours. And that episode based on my understanding of it was not typical because you it was it was originally designed to be earlier in the year and then mm-hmm. cooper had to go to the network and say you know we've got this idea for for 2 hours can we expand it and my my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong on this but my understanding was that it wasn't it, parts of it were just kind of shot all over the place like shot when you could get to it is is that is that yeah. right yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if memory serves me correctly, I think we actually shot a great deal of that episode uh, as a second unit. <clears throat> because again, we were getting these great efficiencies where we were doing a lot. We had we had basically built ourselves a second unit crew, uh, you know, from the core production crew that we had, and we certainly had all the resources available to us to be able to do it. So if if while one episode was shooting, um, our B camera operator, Andy Wilson, who we upgraded to uh, director of photography, he and I basically would go off and be shooting scenes from heroes. That was obviously a fair bit that was done first unit, but there was a significant amount that was done as a secondary unit. And I would literally be, you know, trying to steal the actors whenever I could. You know, if, if Amanda, if I knew that Amanda had a little bit of a break between scenes, you know, I would literally be, hey, Amanda, I can, I, I can squeeze in a, you know, do you have a, do you have a little bit of time? Us. We can actually grab this interview scene with you and Wolsey and uh, it'd be great <laughs> if we could do that now. Are you okay to do that? I mean, we'd schedule it, obviously, as best we could, right. but there was many opportunities or we would look for opportunities where we could uh, beg, borrow and steal wherever we could. And it was, it, the other sort of uh, strong memory for me with with heroes is it just seemed to go on forever because of, <laughs> because of the fact that I believe there was a hiatus somewhere within the the shooting schedule of heroes because it, it seemed to go on forever. It was this it was the episode that that just would not uh, it just kept on giving. And, <laughs> and uh, when when Rob was able to, I mean, yeah, good on Rob. I mean, he saw the the the, the potential in. Uh, uh, that first hour that I think we were probably 20 minutes long. I don't even remember exactly, but it was, sounds about it, right. 
yeah, I think it was about 20 minutes long, but it was good stuff, you know, and, and uh, you know, credit to Rob, credit to our entire cast, my gosh, and to our guest stars. You know, we had, we had Saul Rubinek, who, you know, he was, he was a handful. He was a really, he was really invested in the character and he had a lot of, um, discussions with rob you know they, were, they had a lot of closed door they yeah they they said that there was very some very passionate discussions particularly some... about the conversation about his speech That's in the hallway there which i will contend is well, one the of the best speeches speech. in the whole show i seem to recall too there was a, a i think rob was on set when we were shooting that yes and i remember saw i okay did he tell this story because mm-hmm. i think saw after after the speech he looked like, over at Rob huh? and was like, huh? huh? Yeah. Exactly right. Right? <laughs> okay, good. I did get that story right because it was actually pretty neat. And it was, you know, I could see Saul's position because he would, you know, he would obviously, because I was on the set directly with him, and if he had ideas on things, he would often, you know, run them by me or would at least say, hey, I've got, I want to talk to Rob about this because I've got some thoughts and this is what it would be, mm-hmm. what would be involved. And there was no way I was about to, you know, sort of give him the opportunity to do that without Rob's authorization. So I made sure that they got together and uh, worked things out. And and to both of their credits, they listened to one another and they worked together. And, and hey, I think at the end of the day, um, it was all good. It all worked out for the better. And that second hour when Rob went back and, and wrote the remainder of the material and brought Picardo in, because I think that was even uh, Robert Picardo's first. That was his first. And my it understanding was, was it? it was, he did it in one day. Was that he did it? Yeah, I think he did it in a day. And I think it was basically his character introduction in the series. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. He comes yeah. in as the hatchet guy. Yeah. The hatchet, can, I, I can't fathom the brain that it takes to, remember all of that information and get all those lines out in the correct sequence in one day, you know, that's, that's a lot. Oh yeah, it is. It was, it was a ton. And, uh, and I had uh, this sort of goofy plan of, of sort of transitioning and Rob and I had talked about this of transitioning the characters within the context of the interviews. Right. So he had to do it in a very fragmented way also, because we would be like taking people out of the chair and drop the next person in while the camera continues to move. <laughs> right. And, uh, it, it was a little bit of a, of a brain twister uh, for all of us, quite frankly. And uh, hats off to, to Robert, because he was just unflappable and, and was just happy to be there. And he was so well prepared and such a great guy, real classy, classy guy. And uh, really, really enjoyed him. And he did such a terrific job. He was, and he, and of course, he gets somebody like like Robert Picardo on set, and everybody elevates to. Oh, absolutely. You know, he has, so, he has. I mean, not only does he have an amazing background with all he's done, but he has the sci-fi background as well. So he gets yeah, it. He gets you know, it. it's right. it's like yeah. slipping into a, a pair of you know leather shoes. Sure. Yeah. Know? Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Well absolutely, is the case. And the other thing I, I kind of. The fond memory of Heroes for me was, you know, obviously it was it was kind of our, um, you know, our love letter to the, the armed forces, which was an important important thing for us to do. 
but it was also just the, 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 the level of investment from all of our cast and, and tonally was so different. We saw components of the, of our cast that we had never really seen before a sensitivity, a, a real vulnerability, a vulnerability big time. And, uh, there was one scene I recall where uh, it was with Amanda coming, storming down the hallway from a, an action sequence where obviously something very traumatic had happened. Frazier's just died. Frazier had just, exactly. Frazier, Janet Frazier had just, had just died. And so she was a mess. And, you know, we tried to shoot it as much as possible just from the documentary camera's point of view. And it was really powerful. Like I remember just on the, on the day shooting it and I was like, Oh my gosh, that, that like you really felt the emotional weight of, uh, of Amanda's performance there. And they were all doing it, all of them. I mean, uh, uh, Chris judge and in his interview, Mike Shanks throughout the whole thing. I mean, they were all amazing. They really were. There was another thing that was quite funny actually that I remember about, uh, I'm sure Rob mentioned this too. It was after that hiatus. This is, yeah. Okay. So there was a hiatus cause Rick, came back and he cut his hair. I don't know if you heard about that one. Yes. You, you know about that? There's, 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 no, there's no cut between scenes. No, it's just a, a hallway change or something, and no, his hair no, is shorter. Just all of a sudden, he's got shorter hair, and well, hopefully no one's going to notice. I remember, like, Rick. I didn't oh, notice. Man, we, we're not finished this episode yet. Oh, really? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? You know? You're yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, the hair's cut. Uh, I can't put it back on now. <laughs> it goes. So there was a few things like that. Um, the death scene, you know, with, with Fraser when, when she got shot, that was, that was obviously a hugely impactful day for us, you know, just having to do that, you know, having to, to shoot that scene was tough. How was it oh. like being the one to point the camera on a character and watch her pass a character that we had loved and cherished yeah. And I'm sure you as you as uh, performers and creators loved and cherished for seven yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was, but it, it, it wasn't was, even her last scene. Then like the next couple of days she came back to life again. I mean, that's right. Yeah. It was, it's always tough to do that sort of thing. And you, and you start to question whether or not this is a really, is this, is it, are we doing the right thing here? Cause she's such a loved character as a human being. We loved her. We adored having her on set. I mean, Terrell Rothery is a, she's a rock star. She still is. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I love working with her any opportunity I get. So it, it, it was, it was tough. There was a lot of, a lot of emotional weight to that to scene, obviously. Um, yeah, it was, it was not easy, but you know, it's for the good of the show. She got it. She understood. It was yeah. not like she was, um, you know, holding a grudge that she was being shot. Oh no, she, no, not, not at all. Like I mean, at all. I would still be pissed, but I would still get that, you know, for this material, even Rob said it, you know, we, we really had to, you really had to put your money where your mouth is on this one. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, yeah, if absolutely. you're, this is telling a story about people who make the ultimate sacrifice. And if you yeah. don't have that, it just, you could, it'll still be a fine show, but it wouldn't be an exceptional one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I have to say, I mean, for all the episodes um, that I've been a part of, I mean, I still put heroes right up there amongst, some of the work I'm, I'm most proud of. We did a, a the, all the other guest star that we had on that, Adam Baldwin. That's he was, right. uh, yeah, he was, he was fun. That was, was a real, fantastic. that was real cool. And, and what a great guy. And uh, a lot of fun having him on set and really invested and, and you know, loved you know, picking the gun that he was going to use. And we did a big, uh, 
I'm sure you recall a, a big action sequence sort of. And I remember, I remember when we were actually staging that and, and, you know, Rick was asking about like, what, what's the, where's this going? What is, and, and, and it's like, instead of trying to explain it in any kind of great detail, no, it's just a, it's just a big gratuitous action scene, Rick. It's just a bunch of, we're all going to, we're going to have bombs going off everywhere. We'll do a big strafing run. We'll have ships flying everywhere. It's just a big action sequence and that's it. I think you know, it's there's, there's no other explanation for it. Well, in 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 retrospect, I think I think Heroes Part Two at, at once it cuts from Saul saying this is unbelievably boring, and then you have the yeah. shot of the puddle and the yeah. soldier's boot running through it, and that's is it a strafing shot? Is that what that's called where it goes sideways for like fifty feet? Yeah, we just laid a big long dolly track, and I dolly wanted track. it to be almost like a continuous type of a shot, like I could almost do. You know, the design was that it could play as one. You know, you just, you start close on a foot hitting the puddle and then, yeah, from the, exactly coming off of that, this is so incredibly boring to, well, this is what it's like out in the field. Not so boring, is it? No, it's not. So foot into the puddle and then up, tilt up and just track. Alkesh and gliders and and Yeah, the gliders, the bombs going on, the staff blast, the the gliders going through, dropping, you know, doing their sort of napalm runs and uh, until they take cover at the rock and uh, ultimately going to where uh, Rick gets shot, but uh, or O'Neill gets shot. But uh, it was quite fun when we were setting it up because we it didn't take us that long. Like, you know, we, we shot it all in a day. And wow. it was not that, not that long a day either because we were well prepped and we had a third camera. And, you know, we still shot a bunch of coverage, but uh, essentially it was just this big tracking shot that got to the rock and then that was it. But Adam was quite funny because, of course, he was in full metal jacket and... Uh, Right. Just, if this That's was right. a Stanley Kubrick film, I'd be at this rock for three weeks, and you guys are getting it done in a day. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, he, he had a lot of fun. It was cool. It was cool. He was uh, he was really game for everything, and uh, uh, he was a welcome member. I mean, it would have been nice to have had him around for a. For I a agree. Long time. Have Colonel Dixon back. Absolutely. If there's an SG4, I'm totally rooting for uh, for Adam Baldwin's return. I think he might have even been pitched for. Uh, atlantis at one point i wouldn't be surprised yeah, yeah you blew up a lot of jaffa as well in in yeah. that episode how do you execute scenes like i guess i guess dan shea would have been heavily involved because yeah. i mean you've got to have i just remember these jaffa just shooting through the air springboards or something have got to be hidden behind some of these rocks how do you pull all that off yeah, we would have uh, uh, we would have these little mini trampolines. We would have uh, ratchets. We would have all sorts of uh, little gizmos that would help launch them up in the air. And and Ray Douglas and Scott Stouffer and the boys would set the uh, you know the explosive charges. And you know when the when the explosion goes off, stunt guys would be there with the finger on the button, or the guys that, or the actual Jaffa stunt guys themselves would have the finger on the button. Well, that so makes sense. Running, you know, when we would when we would obviously rehearse that pretty yeah. carefully to make sure all the timings would work but i mean that was that was the most fun part of uh, the explosions of the show, was just getting to you know blow stuff up and shoot guys and just you know launch them every which way and and the effects guys were great they could load them up in no time at all and, and put the staff hits on them and uh, yeah so it was great good good gratuitous action <laughs> loads of, loads of fun. in fact to this day i have tinnitus and i think that tinnitus is from so much p90 gunfire without proper ear protection oh man i would think that that would have been mandatory 
It is mandatory. We all, the, the props guys would come around with the cans and and uh, or or the foamies to insert mm-hmm. into your into your uh, your ears, but sometimes you just say, "Yeah, no, I'm fine. I'll just put my fingers in oh, my ear." Oh no, and that's yeah. cumulative. And you get caught up in the moment and the other dialogue ahead of time, so you're listening carefully to the dialogue, and then oh shit, here comes the the gunfire, and and you know you don't get your headset off fast enough and get your fingers in your ears to protect yourself and you get a good three or four seconds of P90 fires. Right in your uh, ears. Yeah, I understand. Your ears. And when you're doing it inside. Uh, oh, that's, that's, oh man. Yes. That's where that, that percussion would just be insane. It's so loud. You see, you know, I've, I've shot weapons and they're, they're, when you don't see like someone like flinch, if there's like a, a gunshot off scram, like there was no gunshot. If there was an actual gunshot there, you you at least blink because it's intense. It's It's so oh, yeah. visceral. Oh, for so. sure, and that's a, and that's a very common thing now is to do a VisFX muzzle flash for the gunfire, and it just never works because there's no kickback percussion, there's no blinking of the eyes. It, it, like you said, that you just can tell when it's being faked. Something's least, wrong. Yeah, something's wrong. Yeah, but um, no, we uh, we very rarely did that unless we were pointing it, you know, straight at somebody's head or right into the lens where we would have to do it a fake muzzle flash but for the most part we we just loaded up the blanks and had at her went away i want to set sg1 aside i'd love to come back to it in the future with you um atlantis uh the pegasus galaxy very different type of animal very different um cast in terms of their like their intensities and just just a, a different a different group of people. What was it like switching gears from SG One to Atlantis? And I'm sure you went back and forth, you know, throughout those those three seasons where it overlapped. Um, what what was what was Atlantis like in comparison to SG One? Was it basically the same type of thing in terms of scheduling and production and everything else? Were there other considerations to make? Tell us about that. You know, the, the production the production component by and large was was very similar. I mean the the you know, the format is still the same. We were in the same physical building. You know, if you came downstairs sure. from the office, you turn right to go into, into the gate room. Yeah. You want to hang a left and you're, uh, you go into the Atlantis gate room. That's so, right. I, you know, you could easily like, oh, shit, I meant to turn left, but I turned left. <laughs> Am I going to Milky Way or Pegasus? There was, there, <laughs> and there was, there was, there was a, a, the crossover was quite seamless, to be honest. The, you know, the, obviously the different dynamic with, uh, with the cast and crew, but for the most part, um, it was, it was pretty seamless. Um, but the dynamic was different, certainly, you know, because the characters are different. The, the, the performers are different. So you, you would, uh, relate to them in, in a different way. The set was very different. You know, it was very expansive and very clean, very pristine, very modern. Um, and the show had been set up by, by Martin Wood, who did such an amazing job with uh, uh, the first episodes and rising. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just tried to kind of build upon that. But it was pretty, uh, it was pretty seamless. And then ultimately we got even got into some crossover. Yes. Uh, which, which really helped. But, uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was good. It was, it was surprisingly straightforward. And, and I don't really remember, um, big sort of trip ups or stumbling blocks in the, in the, in those first, in that first season. I think it was, it was pretty smooth, smooth sailing. You may correct me and tell me otherwise from what you learned from other folks, but my recollection at least was it was pretty smooth. I would imagine because with SG one, 
the bunker is from the movie. And for Atlantis, they, it was pretty obvious. We were going to make an expansive space for that, that Stargate and give you more options to, I, I would think it, the, the flexibility in choices of shooting were better typically for Atlantis than it were for SG one, where you were basically simulating an underground space. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, the design of the set was, was fantastic all these multiple layers and you could actually, um, you know, because there was a big open expanse down below, you could literally craft a shot that would start, you know, tight on one of the consoles up on the top deck and you could follow that person, you know, right out and down, down steps and down to the other levels, right down to the actual gate room level. So you could really choreograph some, some big expansive, beautiful, uh, beautiful stagings. Uh, the, the set was designed specifically for that. And, uh, and I'm sure Martin had a big, you know, a big voice in the mm-hmm. in the design of it as well, just to to be able to, you know, connect all those dots. Because mm-hmm. of course he he was renowned for his big uh, big expansive uh, stagings, which were always loads of fun to watch. The, but it was, a, it was a great set to shoot in. The second season added an off a change in Weir's office. There's there was a bridge to go to Weir's office and she had this kind of corner there. And then the second season, um, you guys expanded that into like about three times the size for a much bigger space. And I was wondering like, how do we, I, I guess they, they get, they found some hammer and nails while they were in the Pegasus galaxy and expanded this off. It's, it's those kind of little retcons that you just have to say to yourself, this really was there all along. They just removed a wall and we didn't see it. Yeah. Well, you, you try to do those sorts of things where you try not to hang a lantern on them too much and, and hopefully, hopefully people won't notice them, but it, uh, it certainly helps to, uh, to give a little bit more breath. I, I want to go to uh, enemy at the gate because it was such Atlantis was much more action than SG one was. was. Uh, 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 SG one had its, Definitely had its Indiana Jones, you know, qualities and moments, but there was there was something just much more intense about Atlantis overall. It seemed to go f- set the the contemplative stuff aside because I don't think really there wasn't really much of a Daniel voice in the show. There was a little bit with Weir and a couple of the others, but I think that the running and gunning of the show um, for Atlantis just proved to be one of one of its strengths. Would that make it? Um, longer for pre-production no typically no, no you no, just we, managed to fit we, it in i think we i think we as if memory serves yeah i think we we uh, we managed to keep it all in the same this sort of the same schedule and mold and it uh, you're right i mean there was definitely more it, was, it, it felt like it was more involved that, that there was more to it certainly in the vis- visual effects component of it as well i think they were you know had certainly more challenges mark savella and his team of uh, of artists, you know, it was a lot more involved with this, you know, the big, uh, the space battles that would, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the puddle jumper and, and everything that came uh, uh, with that. But it was um, scheduling wise and production wise, it was all pretty much the same, but uh, you know, the levels of intensity, like David Hewlett, for instance, and the intensity that, right. that, that it was just great. He was always so invested and it just yes. created that, uh, palpable energy all the time whenever he was on screen and, and and that was infectious so the rest of the gang kind of followed suit Flanagan uh, uh, you know was was the calming force and <laughs> it was a really nice uh, nice combination of energies 
that, uh, that's open format now too. Rob Cooper wrapped up uh, SG1 with Unending, and you were charged with uh, wrapping up Atlantis with Enemy at the Gate. Uh, was it another day at the office getting this this second series completed, or were there thoughts of like, because you, I mean, the, you knew at that point that the show was not coming back for a sixth season when you guys shot it. Um, yeah, we knew we were done. We knew, we knew that we were finished. So there was how certainly, was that? A, yeah, I mean, there was there was certainly some 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 pressure to that, um, but it was a pretty complex, you know, multiple storyline episode. There was there so it was so dense that it very. Didn't, you yeah i mean I, I my recollection was any sort of um a burden of knowing that that was the last episode i think it kind of went away once once it was boots on the ground and we were doing it because it there was there was a lot to do um and just again those multiple storylines and and uh you know it was a pretty big action show as well you know we were, we were doing a lot of different things and it and i think that, that just pretty much took all the attention anyway so that that burden of it being the last episode was kind of pushed to the side a little bit. And I, I tried to treat it as, as just another show, but you know, you also tried not to compromise and like, okay, look at the, we've got the one shot at this. Let's not screw it up. There you know, were some great sequences in that Atlantis reentering the atmosphere of earth and, you know, settling down just outside of, of San Francisco. It's like not used to seeing golden gate from that angle. Was there any kind of pre-production work involved in making sure that that, that that looked aesthetically correct? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think at the onset, if I'm not uh, speaking out of school here, my recollection was that the original idea was that it was going to land in New York city at the statue of Liberty. I think that was the initial plan. And then it was just, well, there's just, it's surrounded by landmass. I don't think we can actually land Atlantis. Right. Outside. So, so I think that's why it ended up ultimately going to um, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. I have to check with Paul and Joe on that one. They would okay. be the, okay. the guys who would be able to answer that one correctly. But that was my recollection. But yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, obviously we had to kind of set where the islands were going to be and, and what the lighting was going to be like at that point when, when they all came up to the railing to look outside. What was yeah. Flanagan like over the, over the course of that of that run? Very different energy from Rick. Yeah, yeah, very different energy. Very intense, very thoughtful. Um, I think he might have sort of given the impression from time to time that, that you know, maybe it, he either wasn't interested or he had other ideas, but that wasn't the case. He was always, he always at the end of the day came to the party and 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 delivered the goods and and you know we he just yeah just a little bit of a different energy and you would treat him a different way of this but that's the case with ev- with every one of them you would always speak to each person a little bit differently and and that's part of our jobs is mm-hmm. is you know actors are funny people you know they they they, they require a, a specific attention they, they like to be spoken to one-to-one and that's and that's only fair and they want to be heard and they want to make sure that their ideas are being are being Considered. listened to and uh, if they need a bit of an explanation as to why they're doing what they're doing it's it's only fair that they're given that explanation but no joe was a great guy he was he was he was fine he would always you know we never waited for him he would, he would come and he was asked and uh, um yeah I, I no complaints whatsoever i mean back in the old days when I was an assistant director, good Lord. I mean, it was sometimes the actors wouldn't come out of the trailers for hours on end. And those days are, thank God, at least in my career, 
uh, in my history, the, those days are gone, but it used to be, used to be ugly. Wow. Just pretentious. Pretentious, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, essentially that's, you know, narcissistic. Is it just that we're more sensitive now? Than, or that our tolerances are lower, or that our tolerances are lower. We don't have we don't have time to uh, deal with it. That. And also, we've got these things to record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone talking too. Yeah, hundred so. percent. Yeah. No, I think everybody. Uh, uh, yeah, and that was actually quite a wonderful uh, invention for us to uh, as a communication device and as a recording <laughs> device. That, uh, but yeah, it, no people. Uh, I think those days are gone, and, and uh, you know. I think a lot of shows, a lot of producers have sort of come to the conclusion that life's too short to deal with those kind of people. When, oh, that's true too. Well, yeah, that was that was the motto them. upstairs as well. LTS. Yeah. So, yeah exactly. And I think it's one of the reasons that the franchise was as successful as it was on television. So Yeah. Yeah. Stargate well, Universe. Air yeah. one through three. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. You know? An amazing, amazing experience, I have to say. That one uh that, that was one that I did feel the burden of a little bit, but but also loved the challenge um, of starting off a show like that. We were under a certain amount of pressure from um, sci-fi. You know, they were looking for a show that sort of bridged uh, the Battlestar Galactica world and the Stargate SG-1, or the Stargate world. Was, they, were, they were trying to sort of combine those elements. So they wanted something that was a little darker, a little grittier, little more visceral than uh, and serious and well, realistic in my opinion too yeah for sure very yeah very much so and and you know the performances were the the, the way the camera was handled much more handheld you know more verite style and uh, yeah it was it was i'm very proud of 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 sgu and and was profoundly disappointed when uh uh, when it got canceled, that that was a huge letdown, and because that set, I mean, if you had walked through that, did it's like stepping into H.G. Wells or Jules Verne? Oh yeah, incredible, absolutely incredible. It was astounding. I remember walking in there with uh, Robert Carlyle, and he was just absolutely blown away. Like, well, it was still under construction too when he was uh, when we walked through it, and uh, yeah, it was something else. It was a great experience. And it was fun getting to go to New Mexico. To I was something. about to ask. Yeah, yeah. you, you, uh, White Sands, one of my favorite places on the earth. Anyone listening, if you haven't had a chance to go, do it. Absolutely, it's an amazing place, especially at sunrise or sunset when the when when the um, the shadows are long. Oh yeah. man, tell yeah. us about shooting Air Part Three in White Sands. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, one of the things that. Uh, uh, I wasn't anticipating about shooting in, in White Sand. First of all, um, you didn't have to go very far off of a road to find what you were looking for. Correct. In a way, it all kind of looked the same. But at the same time, there were some really interesting different landscapes. And the wind would, of course, reshape everything overnight. You'd, you'd, you'd be scouting something in the day, mm-hmm. come back the next day, and wait a minute, there used to be this huge dune over here. Well, no. Yeah, it shifted. It shifted. I didn't really anticipate that. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't cause too many problems. In fact, if anything, it probably helped with some solutions of not having to go so far to, you know, to, to look for a different kind of environment. Cause that was sort of the right. challenge for me was to make it feel like we were on this big, long journey. And so uh, you needed some different landscapes. You needed the, you know, the condensed big, uh, uh, dunes and then the, the the open expanses, which of course are everywhere. 
Right. And the continuity between them to give yourself a sense of of direction and how far they are from the gate. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And uh, thank goodness Rob was there the whole time. He basically shot, he shot a ton of the stuff that while we were there, we basically had two units going all the time and he did some of the aerial stuff. So it was great having him there, excuse me, as a, as a helping hand. And of course the heat, which we weren't, we weren't uh, used to coming from the great white North. Exactly. <laughs> Man, it was hot. And, uh, and you would get burned in places that you didn't think you could get burned because this just the reflection of that sun off That's the white correct. skin right up the shorts, if you're not careful. So we were, uh, we were covered head to toe and, uh, uh, you know, it was, we had to take all those precautions of making sure that we were, we were covered and lots of sunscreen and well hydrated so that was the added challenge on top of the the shooting itself but we actually wrapped it early i think we were done in four and a half days we were we were due for five full days and we actually wrapped it up a little bit early which was great and when we were done it was a full moon and let me tell you mm-hmm. full moon at night at on at the white sands oh. is just otherworldly as you could well imagine well you've I been can. there you know. yeah i've never seen it in full wow that's so yeah, cool. cool that cool. that troop of performance that was really an ensemble show you know i mean you, you could argue uh robert carlisle louis ferreira you know ming na uh were were the leads but it really felt like with this one you guys were making a program that everyone really had their part to play and yeah, yeah. It started off, you know, with, with season one, very much wrong people, wrong place. And season two was very much, we've got to become the right people to, to, to rise to the challenge. Yeah. And I think the actors yeah, did that. They really did. They really did. And they, and they were fully invested. There was no question about it. They, they knew that they had something special uh, in their hands and uh, and they took it to task and and really delivered i mean even just the way in which a lot of the characters were introduced when everybody was flying through the gate into destiny faster and faster yeah i mean that was a pretty spectacular uh uh, entrance for a lot of folks and it was great you know and, and and everybody was into it and um i remember i learned a lot during the the shooting of that particular sequence in that the uh, the air episodes ron schmidt who was a, a director of photography that we brought in specifically just to to help us get started on the show i mean he brought a level of experience that uh, was really comforting for me as a director because he was one of these very uh, enthusiastic with every challenge, like if, okay, we're going to shoot a, a scene in a phone booth. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Like he would, he would <laughs> look at the positive sides of things. And, and uh, he had extensive experience shooting handheld cameras, which okay. I mean, I did, but not to that extent. And uh, so a lot of, um, a lot of the visuals were, I have to give, give Ron credit for just helping kind of really push the, uh, that, handheld kind of aesthetic and that component of it which of course uh, jim menard and mike blundell our other uh, our regular mainstay dps just just built upon and uh, made it even better um it really... and, again, and, and having a set like that again oh. extraordinary you... it was just a talk about a playground and the ways that you would light it you know yeah. that one of the things that kind of surprised me when i was when i was talking to you guys about uh, during uh production was that you wouldn't 
necessarily fully light a scene. You would keep it much more organic in terms of like, okay, this is what this space has to offer. And, you know, we're just going to shoot it a little bit more docu-style, docu and it's just dimmer in here. Or, you know, we're going to have the actors move this way and come into this light here a little bit, but the rest of their face is going to be in shadow. I mean... Yeah, that was something that, that again, we weren't used to doing in uh, on an SG-1 in, in Atlantis. We, it was a little brighter, a little bit more, you know, we wanted to see two eyes and, and uh, we were a little bit more careful with SGU. Yeah, we wanted it to feel a lot more organic and a lot more natural. And so, yeah, they would be coming in and out of pools of light, maybe just a fraction of light on, on the back of the cheek or something. And that would be it. And we would we would go with it. You know, and it, and it took a while to be able to to train ourselves to to stick with that. Like, this no, is missing. No, no, it's right. It's right. Yeah. It's how it's supposed to be. These characters are darker anyway. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. it was right. a kind of analogous to that. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, uh, and 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 again, so it ultimately for us became very liberating to to photograph to to shoot because it just you would just defer to what looked great to your eye as opposed to answering to any other you know, like a network voice or whatever that, because that have, that's very common in, in episodic television is, is the networks and the studios will get very involved with the aesthetic of a show and they will want to make sure that, that their stars are well lit. But that wasn't the case with, with SGU. We just did what felt right and what looked good. Did sci-fi's presence what, feel more present in SGU than the previous shows? Were they more hands-on as as the the whole franchise got older, or was it different? Was it just? I mean, the vibe was <clears throat> the vibe was certainly different. I, I mean, I don't. I never really had a lot of dealings myself with uh, with any right. of the execs at Sci-Fi. Okay. I mean, so Rob and and Brad and and John Paul and the boys would be able to provide more certainly more insights into that. I had very very little contact. I mean, I did at the onset, like when, you know, I. Uh, Rob and, and Brad and I had spoken to sci-fi when we were in early prep, when we were kind of pitching the, the concept for the show, the visual concept and pitching me as the director that, so that my involvement was certainly, um, you know, I was involved at that point, but, mm-hmm. but after that, once we were into shooting, no, I never, I, I, I didn't feel any, uh, um, sort of outside pressures from the network at all. So if there but was, they kept it from you. Yeah, they kept That's it from good. me. I mean, it was certainly there. Um, there was certainly that presence and you were aware of it because you knew that the guys were having to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, whether that was ultimately the demise of the show, I don't know. Like, you know, we were all very surprised that it was that it only went for the two years. The numbers obviously weren't quite as good. Um, but no numbers were good. I mean, everything we were entering this, this space where, you know, Netflix and all these others were beginning to rise up and everything was just kind of up and and MGM had its issues as well. Yeah. MGM absolutely had its issues. Yeah. You're right. The landscape was changing at that time. It was going, it was getting ready for chapter 11 or going through it at the time or something. I mean, so I, I, everything was was just, it was unfortunately a a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. I I don't think it was one thing. True enough. Yeah, so. true enough. But it was a nonetheless. It was a. It was a, just a, a real letdown because we were, we were, uh, we were enjoying it immensely and mm-hmm. had high hopes for it. And there was a lot invested. You know that that set, just the costs, as you can well imagine, associated oh, yeah. with 
with yeah. uh, franchise. To, so to walk away and know that it was the very end. Yeah. I mean, I remember when uh, Mike Bannis and I, Mike was the editor, the the last episode of, of SG, which I directed as Gauntlet. well. Gauntlet, yeah. And uh, um, Mike and I sitting in the editing suite together, the two of us, because there was speculation that it might be over and we were kind of told right. to make something that could be a season ender, but maybe it's maybe it's the end of it all. So yeah. we had to, you know, we had to keep that in mind. Cause it wasn't announced yet to anyone who it wasn't, wasn't announced, familiar, but it, the, the, to, its future was still uncertain. Was, that's right. There was still that uncertainty, but when, when Mike Bannis and I sat in the editing room, having just finished our first full sort of assembly with our first pass of music, we just sort of, went, Oh yeah, this is it. It's over. It's done. Like it just felt, you felt it. We felt it at the time. Yeah, the two of us looked at each other and went, wow, it's over. Even though we didn't know, it just felt right. that way. In watching the episode, it, it had that finality to it. Joel's last piece of music for Stargate oh, yeah. is, in my opinion, his best piece of music for Stargate. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. It was, it was breathtaking. We had used um, a Ludovico Ainaudi piece. Yes. In, uh, in the um, in the in the director's cut, uh, I think it was called Fly. Wasn't yeah, and you it? had used him in the show in season we one did. as well. We did, we did. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, uh, Robert Carlyle's episode. Uh, he used used Inaudi, and so we had used. I I love the guy. I, I've got all of his albums. I'm a big fan. Me too. So when we used Inaudi and and his episode, oh my god, it'd be so cool to use it and. And Gauntlet. However, we knew that no, we can't do that. I mean, Joel's got to do this. But we used that as the template. And uh, to his credit, he came back and with a, a piece of score that was just off the charts. It was. Uh, it just gives me shivers when I hear it. I actually was tearing up when I heard it for the first time. I mean, it was a really powerful, moving piece of music that that just works so well on the show. It's crazy. And uh, yeah, something else. Best piece of music he ever did for the show. I agree. What you working on right now? Are you, you've been pretty busy? Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't really stopped. I mean, there was a Good. little, there, yeah, it's been great. I'm, I'm the, hey, I'm the, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. I have to tell you. I, uh, there was a little, a short bit of time where things were quiet after wrapping up SGU because, you know, you're branded as a sci-fi guy. From a, from a director, as a director, you know, you're going on in for some, uh, you know, police procedural drama. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you're a sci-fi guy. We're not interested. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't speak drama. It's like, well, wait a second. I can and do so, this. What are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's, it's, it's the, you're an expert at everything. You, we, we've, we've got the drama. We've got the comedy. We've got the visual effects. We've got the action. You know, sci-fi you know, is everything. Sci-fi is everything. And it's by far the most fun. Absolutely. Like in, in terms of it being like a playground for a director, you cannot beat science fiction and you can't beat the Stargate franchise. I mean, it was as good as it got. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've been super busy. I worked with, uh, with Joe and Paul on, uh, on, on their show on dark, dark matter. matter. Yeah. And, uh, and with Rob on unspeakable, uh, which was a, oh, I loved it. I yeah. loved it. Did you see it? Oh, great. I absolutely yeah, saw it. It's it's on Amazon. I completely recommend that anyone go and watch it because it was, oh, it was yeah, exceptional. Yeah, was... Michael Shanks was excellent. Great. You know, Lexa was yeah. great as one of the lawyers. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's 
it's just a kaleidoscope of Stargate cast. Oh, him. Oh, her. Yeah. Yeah. And for, you know, myself and Rob and Carl to get back together again was super fun. And uh, I mean, it was obviously uh, powerful material. I mean, oh, my gosh. It was, it was it was tough shooting it. I mean, there was times where, where you're shooting scenes and you'd have to go for a walk afterwards because you're so just emotionally beaten down. And uh, it so was a was hard tough. watch as well. It, yeah, for sure, for sure it was. But uh, and then I also worked with uh, with Brad on Travelers, which was uh, which was also super fun. Great show. Yeah, it was really really great. We were we were sad to see that one go also it had a very similar kind of a vibe, you know, just with that sort of the, the camaraderie, the, the, uh, just the, uh, uh, all the relationships were, were so strong and so good. We, we really had hopes that that was going to stay a well, little longer. You know what? I mean, to those listening who have not given uh, travelers a chance yet, perhaps because it got canceled, it's, it's um, three seasons of essentially uh, act one of a three act play. And so if if you if you go and and see it, it, I I would recommend to go and watch it because you get the impression that you're that it's what what is there is a complete arc and it ends like, okay we're getting ready for chapter two. You don't get the chapter two, but you there is the way that it's done is still there is conclusion to it, too. And it's it's very much worth watching. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I absolutely recommend it to uh, to everybody out there to have, you know check it out. I think it's still on Netflix. It should still be on I think Netflix. So yeah, I hope it is. It's one of those that well. I wouldn't I wouldn't have any problem with that coming back in the future. It, it to continue as a season four and perhaps to wrap it up. Yeah, it would be great. It'd be fantastic, actually. Anything um, currently that we should be on the lookout for in the next few months? Um, well, you had, gosh, you're hanging, the, lo- keeping low through COVID, or. Well, the uh, I am part of a, a new series right now. It's it's not science fiction. It's a a, a family drama comedy called Family Law that uh, I don't know if it has a U.S. pickup yet. It's a, a an all Canadian show and is produced for a Canadian network, but it's called Family Law. And uh, Jewel State, of course, is ah. uh, she's the lead. So uh, oh, we great. keep the family. Yeah, we keep the family together. And uh, yeah, Jewel, we brought on, and uh, I'm an executive producer and uh, producer. Congratulations! Director. Thank you very much. Yeah, we we uh, we shot ten episodes last year. We we were only ten episodes, or sorry, ten days into shooting uh, when COVID shut us down for four months, and then we came back and uh, and managed to get through the remainder of the season of season one unscathed. And uh, we're hoping to go to air in April, and uh, and we're also hoping to get back for season two in April. So I'll, uh, I'll let you know if we get a, a U.S. pickup and if yes. there's a, a, a broadcaster there that's going to be airing it because it's a, it's a good show. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. We'll put up links for that as well. So, right. Andy, this has been wonderful. And it's been it's been wonderful catching up with you uh, walking yeah. down memory lane. I would love to have you back a, a few months again to talk about uh, a, a few other episodes as well. Sure. That would be, be loads of fun. Yeah, that was great. I appreciate you very much. And... Um, all the best to your continued success. Thank you. Thanks, David. And you too. Thank you for, uh, for keeping the show alive and uh, with your interest. And, and uh, I love all the memorabilia you've got behind you. <laughs> I love it. And of course, we'd all love to see Stargate come back in some, uh, in some way, shape or form, because it's all very close to our hearts. And, uh, and we know that, it, that, that there's a, a further life to be had. For there, is, there is a hunger for it. And so you're absolutely right. 
Thank you so much to Andy Makita for joining us, producer and director of numerous uh, Stargate episodes from all three series. Uh, Andy is a wealth of knowledge, and I really want to have him back uh, later on as the, the show grows. So thanks again to Andy. We have some fan art for this episode. This is The Joy of Conventions by Spirit Wolf 77 uh, And the, the blurb is, yes, that's what would happen due to my problems telling the difference between fact and fiction. fiction. Just a really quick pick that was CG'd from a really quick sketch done at 2 a.m., there are anatomy issues and whatnot. I wasn't trying to focus on getting it to look perfect. I just wanted to get the idea across. For those of you who aren't obsessive Stargate fanatics, or just in case I did this so poorly that you can't tell who's who from left to right, excluding the furry persona Spirit Wolf, uh, it's uh, Michael Shanks, Corin Nimick, and Richard Dean Anderson. Very, very cool. So before I let you go, well, before I bring on the merchandise, I want to just let you know that your, our giveaway is running. This is the last day for it, January 31st. One of these communication stones is screen used and one is screen accurate. And for the month of January, Dial the Gate is giving away the replica. So to enter to win, you need to use a desktop or laptop computer to visit dialthegate.com. Scroll down to submit trivia questions. Your trivia may be used in a future episode of Dial the Gate either for our monthly trivia night or for a special guest to talk, uh, to, to ask me in a round of trivia. We need to be doing more of that. I haven't done uh, much of that in the last couple of months. There are three slots for trivia, one easy, one medium, and one hard. Only one needs to be filled in, but you're welcome to submit up to all three. Please note the submission form does not currently work on mobile devices. Your trivia must be received tonight. So before February 1st, 2021, Eastern time. So if you're across the line, that's fine, just as long as it's Eastern time. And if you're the lucky winner, I'll be notifying you via your email right after the start um, of uh, February to get your address. And that's what we have for that. Merchandise. Are you ready? Big thanks to Gategabber for helping me to pull this one out of the hat. Dial the Gate is brought to you every week for free, and we do appreciate you watching. But if you want to support the show further, buy yourself some of our new themed swag. We're offering t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, and hoodies of various sizes and colors for all ages at Redbubble. We currently offer four themed designs and hope to add more in the future. Please note that for the word cloud designs, there is a version with a solid off-white background and another that is just transparent behind the letters. The solid background is typically used for when you pick darker colors, but we wanted you to have some options. So be on the lookout for that. Checkout is fast and easy, and you can even use your Amazon or PayPal account. Just visit dialthegate.redbubble.com, and thanks for your support. And if you enjoy this show and you like to see more of these episodes, I would really appreciate it if you'd click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. And please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified of future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And if you plan to watch live, I recommend giving the bell icon a click so you'd be the first to know of schedule changes which have happened to us a couple of different times during the run of this show. Thanks again to Andy Makita. Thanks to my mod team, Summer, Ian, Tracy, Keith, Jeremy, and Reese. Thanks to Linda Gate, Gabber, Fury, and Jennifer Kirby. I cannot do this show on my own. It takes a village, even when I have a weekend off like this one. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for tuning in. And um, we've got James C.D. Robbins, art director and production designer, art director and production designer up next. So... I appreciate you tuning in. Stick around. See you on the other side.
Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner. Co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. Thank you.